I'm in service. It's a mystical thing for me. The Creator has always blessed me with music. That's 2015 NEA Jazzmaster, saxophonist, flautist, and composer Charles Lloyd. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. The word legend is thrown around a lot, but Charles Lloyd is the real deal, as much of a musical innovator today as he was 50 years ago. Lloyd's fierce improvisational skills, his interest in fusing jazz with non-Western musical styles, and his utter musicality has established him as one of the key figures who's expanding the language of jazz. Whether playing standards, avant-garde, or world music, Lloyd's emotional, elegant playing opens his fellow musicians to a deepening creativity as it also captivates a wider audience. But while it's a music that blossomed in the North, it has its roots in the South, and Lloyd's belief that the music was deeply connected to his spiritual growth. I was born in Memphis, and there was this rich heritage all around me in these great creators. And um, I just always didn't understand the world, the, the mechanics of man's inhumanity to man and all of that kind of stuff and how we treat each other and the planet and all of that. But I found in sound I could make a better world. So I was always a sound seeker who strived to um, create my own world. So music was my inspiration and consolation. And it's a quest for freedom and wonder. I never can get it, but I get close, and then I have to continue to go forward. What made you pick up a saxophone to begin with? The saxophone was all around me, and I heard these great players in in my town, and they had been influenced by Lester Young and Charlie Parker, and that instrument resonated with my soul. I wanted to be a singer, but I didn't have the voice for it, and so I still wanted to be expressive, and uh, the saxophone called me, and I had a difficult time getting my parents to get me one, And finally, an uncle from Chicago brought me a saxophone. Charles Lloyd took to the saxophone, and the saxophone took to Charles. It was his great fortune, and ours, that he met a musician who understood what the young, talented boy needed. I had a great mentor when I was about nine years old. I played an amateur show, and I won first prize. And then standing in the wings was this great genius of a pianist, Phineas Newborn, who became my mentor, and he said I needed lessons bad, and he took me around the corner on Beale Street to a great musician, Irving Reason. And I began to take saxophone lessons. I grew up in a time when giants roamed the earth, and so by the time I got to New York, I had uh, the benefits of being around lots of great musicians. Being a sound seeker, the mysticism of sound always touched me so deep. See, my mother, when I was three, four, five, she was leaving me with all these relatives and these people, and it was very discombobulating, and uh, it was a botheration to my nervous system. So getting the saxophone has been a great help to me, and I recommend music to young people because I'm still high from what I got as a youth in Memphis. If I had been born in Vienna, I'd probably play the cello, I, I think. I started listening to Bartok string quartets in in, uh, high school with my dear friend Booker Little. 
You mentioned Booker Little, who went to Manassas He's, High School. Yes, he did. As you, which is like a who's who of jazz greats at, That's at true, Manassas. too. Jimmy Lunsford started the music program there, the great Jimmy Lunsford. And George Coleman, who's George another Coleman, jazz master. Hank Crawford, all these people. Speaking of George Coleman, he also helped me when I was a young man at Manassas. He lived around the corner, so we would go to his house, and he would help Booker and myself. He was a real Santini. You remember that film? Yeah, George was like that. You know, he would make us get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and do our calisthenics and practice and like that. But he didn't have to get Booker up. Booker got up at 4 anyway in practice, and I'd pick him up about 6, 30, 7 o'clock, and we'd go to school. He'd been practicing for about three hours. When you were a child in Memphis, however complicated that was, there was also your mother's house, which was a big house, and she would let rooms to jazz artists who came through town, which had to have been really such a gift for you. <laughs> yeah, that was Mecca for me. There were two theaters, the Esquire Theater and the W.C. Handy Theater in my community of Orange Mound. That's where we lived. And a lady who ran the theater, she knew my mother had a large house and there weren't hotels of quality for these musicians. And so Duke Ellington and Lionel Hampton and Count Basie, these bands would come through and uh, they would stay in various homes in the community and uh, they would stay with us. And uh, I couldn't wait for them to get up in the morning, so I, I had questions. I would pounce and they were very kind to me. And uh, they saw that I was bit by the cobra. But to Johnny Hodges' credit, the great Johnny Hodges and uh, Harry Carney, they told my mother to not let me be a musician to make sure I would be a doctor lawyer because they said this stuff is too hard. But by that time, I had no way of turning back. When you were in Memphis and you were younger and playing, you were playing the blues. You played with Howling Wolf, you played with B.B. King. Bobby Blue Bland, uh, all those guys, uh, Roscoe Gore. I played with all, all that, the guys who created the blues, that tradition. And uh, playing with these blues guys was very powerful stuff because I heard it. I knew what it was. To a degree, I was too young to know totally what it was because women would be pulling these guys' pants down and attacking the, their vitals. And I mean, they'd be, they'd, they'd be on those guys. I mean, I didn't know that about that part, but I knew that what they were bringing because my grandfather had a large farm in Mississippi, and uh, all those guys, those blues guys, they they came out of the deep south. And uh, I remember uh, McKinley Morganfield. That's uh, Muddy Waters. He just got off the tractor one day and left. <laughs> In the Mississippi, you know. It's something about the cry, you know, the moan. There's something in there that touches deep. So the blues thing uh, affected me greatly, and I got the cry still in my horn. Sometimes I say that I'm a blues man on a spiritual journey because I've had all that apprenticeship with those masters, and I had the apprenticeship with 
with great jazz masters, and I witnessed them, uh, Duke Ellington, those people. It was just amazing stuff. The richness of from whence I come uh, still informs me. Charles Lloyd moved to Los Angeles in 1956 and graduated from the University of Southern California. My folks wanted me to go to med school, pre-med, so I signed up like that. But I went to a jam session shortly after I was there, and I met Billy Higgins and uh, Gerald Wilson and a lot of great musicians. So my mother said, well, you know, whatever you want to be, be the best at it, and uh, we'll support you. And uh, I took that to mean to be the best me that I could be. During this time in California, Lloyd played in clubs with Higgins, Don Cherry, Ornette Coleman, and Eric Dolphy, among a host of others. He also played in Gerald Wilson's big band. And then, in 1960, Lloyd joined forces with Chico Hamilton. All my peers, Scott LaFaro and Ornette, left Cali, and I was there, and I couldn't handle it, you know. But there was a great sage, Buddy Collette, who, who played in the studios. Buddy started with Chico. They started the group with Fred Katz and those guys, and Jim Hall. And Eric Dolphy was with Chico Hamilton, and he was leaving to join Charles Mingus. And Chico called Buddy Collette and said, can you come help me? And Buddy said, no, but I, I know a guy. Buddy recommended me to Chico, and that was my railroad ticket out of Cali. And I, I got, to, got to New York. Charles Lloyd made a mark on that band, bringing in guitarist Gabor Zabo and becoming the ensemble's music director and composer. They had great music, but the problem was I was a cadet by that time, and I had to, I had to soar and fly. I liked to soar. That was during the time of Sonny Rollins and Coltrane on the tenor, you know, and they were really lifting it up. And uh, I was an alto player, and I switched to tenor because I liked my alto playing better than anyone else's, and that's not good for a young person, you know. But over on tenor, uh, Coltrane and, and Sonny Rollins would put a hurt on me. That was in, inspiring for me because I, I like, uh, what's the word, becoming, being and becoming. And so I went with Chico, and I said, I'm leaving because i got to stay here in New York. And he said, no, don't leave. We're going to change. Uh, you, you come and be the music director. When I was with Chico, I was there for three and a half years, and I wrote a lot of music, and it was great for me because I, I got to be a pilot, you know, without the expense of uh, the botheration of, of keeping the books and all that stuff. You know, I could just do pure music. Well, talking about working together in harmony, you and Gabor, the alchemy that you two had. And he was Hungarian. See that thing? See, whatever you're looking for is looking for you. The Bartok thing from high school, and then, then Gabor. He heard Roy Rogers and he heard Voice of America, Willis Conover playing jazz. Gabor came over and I turned him on to Ravi Shankar and Coltrane. And so he started bending notes and he had all the gypsy stuff from over there. Gabor and I had a very deep tenderness thing. Yeah. New York City was the center of the jazz world in the early 1960s. 
filled with new music and old friends. My timing was good. It was a rich community of musicians in, in, in Mecca, and I got there, that's New York City, Gotham. I got there just in time, and it was wonderful, and uh, there were all these places where you could hear great music all the time and play with musicians. And so when I first got to New York, I checked into this Alvin Hotel where Lester Young lived. And it was a musician hotel across the street from Birdland. So what, what happened was that Booker happened to be playing that night. It's again the blessings at, downstairs at Birdland. And I went to hear him and he said, where are you staying? And I said, I'm staying across the street to Alvin. He said, no, you're not. You're coming home with me. So he took me home with him up on East 92nd Street across from the Y up there. And he began to unfold the tablets to me. And he told me that I was about to jump into the fast lane. He said, it's about character. And uh, that haunted me. Charles would record more than a half a dozen albums with Chico Hamilton, including Passing Through and Man from Two Worlds albums whose music was arranged and written almost entirely by Lloyd. But Charles Lloyd was moving on. Cannonball Adderley came around and wanted me to join his group. He had more box office appeal. I don't know what, what that was all about, but he wanted me. He, he loved my playing, and he said, I, I want to watch you grow and develop because I know you're going to be one of the greats. And that was something, because Cannonball was wonderful on the saxophone. So... I was living in New York. Chico was still living on the West Coast at the time. I was with Chico, but we didn't work a lot, you know. It was really rough. Covered wagon, you know, you go to Pittsburgh, go to all these little towns for, for 10 cents a dance. So I left Chico. Cannonball came, and, you know, that was presentation, you know. I want you to join. You were going to play your music. So that was fine for me. And I decided that uh, I would go with Cannon. I played with him for a year and a half, and that was a wonderful experience because Joe Zavanu was playing piano, Sam Jones and Louis Hayes, and they were playing at such an intensity level. I was impressionistic, you know, with Chico. And so I had to step up because those guys were... One year later, in 1965, Charles Lloyd formed his own legendary quartet with Jack DeJeanette, Cecil McBee, and Keith Jarrett. It was one of the best jazz quartets ever. No one had ever heard music like theirs. Improvisation informed by free jazz, different cultural cadences, and impressionistic harmonies. And people everywhere took notice. playing some little club in San Francisco called El Matador, and these guys came from a, a group called the Committee. They were like Belushi and those guys, Second City in Chicago, and the Committee Theater in, in uh, San Francisco. And they would come to the El Matador after, after their theater. They'd come down 
and they just come to hear us. They loved us every night. And the guy said, man, there's this place over there called the Fillmore. And they went and told Graham about me. He invited me for one, one afternoon, Sunday afternoon, to play for half an hour, an hour and a half. They wouldn't let us off the stage. And Santana said he was at the front of the stage saying, free the people, Charles, and stuff like that. Charles Lloyd Quartet was considered the first crossover band. It was the first jazz group to play at the Fillmore. They often shared stages with rock-heavy hitters like The Doors, Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, and Janis Joplin. Their album, Forest Flower, was one of the first jazz albums to sell a million records. It was a music that spoke to traditional jazz audiences as powerfully as it did to the children of rock. In 1967, Lloyd was voted Jazz Artist of the Year by Downbeat Magazine. And that same year, he made headlines when the quartet became the first jazz group from the United States to play in the USSR by invitation of the Soviet people rather than through government sponsorship. Charles Lloyd was at the peak of his career. But he also had great discontent, some of it caused by drugs, which he called tragic magic. And he was also galled by the rank commercialism of the music business. But mostly, he yearned to reconnect with his spiritual path. So in 1969, Charles Lloyd disbanded the quartet and walked away from his career. I just think that the, the understanding of of commerce and profit, uh, it's too skewed. I left New York and I, I came to Malibu, and, and I said, that was 30 years ago, and I came looking for spiritual life. I got off the bus. I was living down in the village. These guys from Canada were big fans of mine and friends, Robbie Robinson and those guys, the band, Levon Helm and stuff. They started playing with Dylan. They'd moved up to Woodstock. I knew them before they played with Dylan. But they liked blues and all that stuff, you know. And I met them when I was with Cannonball in 64. And uh, I was up visiting Robbie in Woodstock. And uh, we went over to Dylan's house. So Dylan comes up to me and says, Robbie says you're going to move to the West Coast. He said, don't go out there. That place is going to fall into the ocean. And I said, well, so be it, you know. I'm getting out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm hatting. Catch the first thing smoking. You just have to follow your own bells, you know. I did jump into the fast lane and got run over by all those Mack trucks, but I pulled myself together and I got up. That's the thing in life. We may fall down a lot or we have this ability to make these mistakes, but we also have to learn from them and to go forward and you get up and you don't want to go back in that same rut. For more than a decade, Lloyd lived a quiet life in Big Sur, pursuing his inner journey. But in 1981, 18-year-old French jazz pianist Michel Petrucciani literally came knocking on his front door. There was this pianist who played with me. Petrucciani came over from France, and, you know, the elders had always helped me. I don't take drugs. I can come back. So I took him around the world a couple of years to get him started. So... I got Michelle started. He was doing his trio thing, going around the world. But then I was bit by the cobra again. So 
You know, if you're bit by the cobra, you have no way of being uh, other than blessed, you know. For the next few years, Lloyd performed intermittently. But in 1988, after a serious illness, he rededicated himself to music and once again began pushing at boundaries, experimenting in terms of instruments, musical sources, and collaboration, like starting a trio with tabla player Zakir Hussein, who also happens to be a National Heritage Fellow. I had never heard Zakir play. This was a decade or more ago. I got a call from John McLaughlin that they were playing down at UCLA and he wanted me to come down to hear them. John McLaughlin's a dear friend and a wonderful artist and a great, great musician. And I knew of Zakir Hussein. And when I went out to see them, I couldn't stop hugging Zakir. We made this instant bonding. But I heard him, and what I heard was the deep blues, like I heard a source music coming out of him. He was playing, he was beating those beats out with such soulfulness. It took me back to Howling Wolf. get together and we play and we have a group Sangam and that started out as a tribute to Billy Higgins, a great master. Well you mentioned Billy Higgins and I'd love to talk about him. He was so, he would sit here and we played here in the living room and he'd look out on the water and he'd see all those intervals out there and we'd talk about that for days. He stayed up here for a week and his health was failing. He's another holy man like Booker was, you know. But here's the other thing. Higgins was a tragic magic guy for most of his days, you know, but he cleaned up and uh, started a school down there in South Central and uh, taught kids, you know, so he gave back. And when he left town, when he ascended, Max Roach called me and said, how are you? I said, well, I'm having a rough time. He said, so I was talking to Max and, and I started crying. So he called back the next day and told Dorothy, he said, I'm coming. He was 77 at the time. He came out to L.A., flew out, and we offered him hospitality to come up here and visit with us. He said, no, I just came out to pay respects to Billy. I said, did you always love him? He said, straight through. You know, that touched me so deeply. And he got back on the plane and went back to New York in the same day. Whew, I couldn't do that. Which way is East, the, C the CD that you made with Billy? That's how it was. That's how it got the title. Talk about asking which way is he's all the time, so he could do his prayer. It was just you and he. It was a duo. How did that come together? Well, he said, "Aki, I can do things with you. I can't do with others." And he said, "We've got to. We got to do something." So he has these guys to take a big truck and bring, fill up this living room, which is not small, fill it up with instruments. He had all kinds of instruments from all over the world, and he had all kinds of drums. For a week, we just went at it. And I hadn't played alto. He hadn't seen me play alto since I was a teenager, you know. So I lined up my instruments because I knew he was going to be coming. I had my bass flute and I had all the instruments and so on. And I played piano. He sang. And we were just having a conversation with, with this music.
we had no thoughts of sending it out into the world. Jerry Allen was playing piano with me. Master Higgins left May of 2001. Jerry Allen was playing piano with me during that period. I had played that for the band. And she said, you must release this. People must hear this music. They must hear it. So Dorothy produced it and made it happen. You did a duo also, which is rare. Duos are very, are, are very rare. And you did one with uh, Jason Moran as well, Hagar's song. The thing about duos is that you take your clothes off. You don't have no bass or drums to help you out and protect you. You know, you're kind of naked. Jason and I, he's a, he's a young man with an old soul, and, and he can climb up into the Hyperions with me. So the first time I met him was backstage at Carnegie Hall. He and Eric Harlan grew up together in Houston, and I went in Eric's dressing room to say hello to his mother, who had come up for the concert. And Eric introduced me to Jason, and Jason said, your music touched me to my backbone. And that's a Southern thing, and I know what that means. And so Eric called and said, Jason wants to play with you. And I said, well, I thought he has his own band. He said, well, he does, but he wants to play with you. Then I said, oh, welcome. So Jason came aboard, and, and that was 2007, I think. Hagar's song, you have Hagar's suite and some standard tunes as well. You have both. Well, that, that's a part of my life, you know. I, I grew up those songs, you know. And most times I don't tell the musicians what we're going to play before we play it, you know, when I record. I just. When you record, you don't? No. We just go in and do it. Charles Lloyd continues to keep on pushing and thriving. On April 14th, Blue Note Records will release his six-movement Wild Man Dance Suite, which will have its North American premiere in the Temple of Dendor at the Metropolitan Museum of Art on April 18th. I had this commission from Poland to, to write a suite of music. They offered me the Polish Symphony Orchestra. They offered me all kinds, whatever I want I can have. It's a continuous suite for like 80 minutes. I work slow. So once I got started, the beautiful thing was I couldn't stop. And there was one movement that I thought was a complete, so I didn't take it with me. I came back and checked that movement out, and it was pristine. It was wonderful. And now I'm so thrilled that I, I took it back up, and now, now we play it too. And so I think that the ineffable is what comes out of the music and that sound. What I'm trying to do with this experiment of this life is to take this boy and clean him up and, and, and 
shake him out and stuff like that and make him face the mirror of his inadequacies and keep playing into the horn. And then I noticed that if I shake out more dust and stuff, then the sound gets a little better. Thank you for giving me so much time. And again, many, many congratulations. Thank you all for recognizing me. I might have, I was told that if you have the goods and you live away in a cave, that the world will beat a path to your door. I haven't found that, but at least you all found me, and that's a great honor because I'm uh, in awe of this tradition that I come from. It's a, bl a great blessing for me. That is 2015 NEA Jazz Master Charles Lloyd. Charles Lloyd and the other 2015 Jazz Masters will be honored with a concert and ceremony on April 20th at Jazz at Lincoln Center in New York City. You can get tickets at jazz.org. And if you can't make it to New York, don't worry. The NEA is webcasting the event live. Go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.